Tech Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Hello there and welcome to Tech Radio in association this week with Viper Security. We are the number one Irish tech podcast bringing you news in tech from around Ireland and across the world every Friday evening on RT Radio or you can get it first anytime you like with your favourite podcasting app from Apple, Spotify or Google. Today we are talking money, money, money. Loads of stories. Ransomware, Amazon getting away with a load of tax, uh, Bitcoin making the headlines as well. Uh, We're talking about fibre to the home in Ireland and some very cool new uh, VR headsets that are totally shocking at the same time. My name is Dusty Rhodes. This is episode 868 and here to chat about it all is our editor-in-chief, Niall Kitson. How you doing, Niall? Hey, Dusty. Ransomware. Money, 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 money. Money, money, money. Actually, can we get into the novelty story of the day first? Because this this just broke the day before we started recording. So I, I had all our stuff in the past, if you will, and this broke overnight as far as we are concerned. So uh, as we all know, um, Elon Musk said, came out at, uh, he hosted Saturday Night Live last week and he came out and basically said, yeah, Dogecoin is, to quote the man, a hustle. Uh, of course, sending the value of his preferred cryptocurrency plummeting. And now Tesla has gone one further and uh, decided that, yeah, we're not doing um, transactions in Bitcoin anymore because of the effect Bitcoin has on the environment. This is, of course, in terms of the amount of energy generated to create new Bitcoin at the moment. And just to give you an example of how much energy is being wasted on this, you know, charade, uh, roughly the annual, if you look at it year on an annual basis, as much energy is devoted to mining Bitcoin as running Sweden. You could say that about how many things. As much energy is used to power PlayStation gaming consoles as is used to power Sweden. Yeah, but look at the motives. Look at the motives and what you're actually getting. Right? Okay. A, enough, a PlayStation is a is a enough power is used to run the Bank of Ireland as there is to power Balbriggan for a week. <laughs> now, you see, are you getting into a legitimate comparison or a bit of whataboutery? Yeah, yeah, a bit of a whatabout. I think that that whole environmental thing is complete balderdash. Uh-huh. I think that there is um, all kinds of funny going on in the background with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and Elon. Remember, his background is with PayPal and mm. money and the Internet. And it was he who Bitcoin was going through a huge jump in value. And then Elon jumped on it. And all he did was uh, he said, uh, Grant, we're, we're going to put some money into Bitcoin and we'll sell our cars uh, if anybody wants to buy them by Bitcoin. And then that shot the price up almost 50, whatever it was. Again, it was another huge jump. Mm. Now he's turning around and he's going, ah, you know what? No. And then, of course, there's, uh, there's all Dogecoin and stuff like that. Like, you know, one man, there's yeah. six billion, eight billion people on Earth. And this one man with one word or just a quick press release, look at what he's able to do. I know it's a bit it's a bit scary, isn't it? But it also shows once again the volatility of cryptocurrencies. Now, if you look at something like Ethereum, which has sort of found its niche very much by doing you know interesting 
project. Not it's not mm. you know a currency in the sense that Bitcoin and Dogecoin are. Um, that's you know that shows one angle of blockchain which is very useful. Uh, mm. If you look at things like um, one project I came across was uh, vote verification. Uh, in elections, which which I thought was quite interesting when I when I saw that, um, and that's the kind of thing that um, cryptocurrencies are are pretty good at. Sort of blockchain technologies are pretty good at. But when you get into uh, cryptocurrencies, it's it's large. It's a speculative market because it's not tied to any government. It's not tied to you know gold or any um, uh, you know there there's there's nothing underpinning its value. It's it's basically somebody could. Elon Musk could wake up in the morning and go, do you know what? Bitcoin is back on for Tesla and watch the value skyrocket again. It's far too volatile to, um, to, to really sustain. And, you know, the fact that if you look at the kind of energy being used to generate Bitcoin is quite problematic as well, because an awful lot of these uh, Bitcoin mining, mining facilities are in China, uh, where they, they, basically look to whatever class of fuel is cheapest at the time and whether it's fossil fuels or whether it's hydroelectric uh, power during you know when it's when it's rainy um you know it we should be looking at reducing the ways uh in which we use vast amounts of energy not thinking that we've created this wonderful space that we can fill with some other commodity and let's mm. do that I'm just I'm I'm not buying it. Um, I think that whole energy thing is balderdash, and I would say the same thing about the volatility and it not being tied into anything. What investment? No investment is guaranteed. Even when you buy your own house with a mortgage, which of course is making all the headlines and everything today, the first thing they will tell you is that the value of your property could fall or rise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yep. it, it, it's the same with stocks and shares. Uh, it's the same with anything. Nobody, nobody can predict the future. But if you're Elon Musk and you can go on Twitter <laughs> and say something, you can direct what may happen in the future. I just, just, just think it's very interesting. Anyway, Bitcoin, yes, uh, with Elon and it's falling today. And I bet you we'll be here next week going, oh, my God, who'd have thought it's doubled in value? Anyway, yeah, Bitcoin um, is back. Exactly. Speaking of money, uh, ransomware. Now, we're all used to ransomware. And (laughs) it's so funny. I I get these emails quite a lot now. It's like, we've been monitoring your computer. We know what you're doing. We've seen the websites you're on. We've looked at your webcam and we have footage. And it's like, well, you don't because I don't have webcam. (laughs) I'm a stupid computer. (laughs) And and I'm beyond uh, all of that stuff that you're telling me that. uh, Anyways, um, uh, but ransomware has been successful to a certain extent this week. It has indeed, yeah, yeah. Uh, Colonial Pipeline, a company that we're not familiar with uh, in Ireland, but is responsible for, I think it's about 45% of the uh, petroleum-based energy uh, on the east coast of the US. Uh, They have a pipeline that runs 5,500 miles from Texas to New York. Um, They have been, uh, they have suffered a ransomware attack, uh, which as we all know, basically gets into your computer, you open the file, it locks your computer and asks you to pay a fine or risk uh, having your data uh, deleted. Of course, the, the the wisdom at the moment is to, one, make sure you have backups anyway, but two, you can't be certain 
that you know paying the ransom will actually unlock your data. Um, mm. They might say, you know, give us a Bitcoin and that's it, which of course is, is mucho expensive. Uh, and you've you've no idea that the unscrupulous actor that has locked your computer will actually unlock it after you've paid them a wad of cash. Um, you don't know. So conventional wisdom at the moment is don't bother paying it uh, and make sure you've kept a backup. But, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, Colonial Pipeline have gotten themselves on the wrong side of one of these attacks. Now, all is not lost. They do have vendors they are working with to get back online. So it's not a case of the company you know, imploding or anything like that. Mm. Uh, it's just a, a case of a, a massive inconvenience. And uh, some of the systems that have been compromised have had to be taken offline, which means that the Biden administration has had to do things like loosen regulations about um, uh transporting massive amounts of fuel online, mm. uh, sorry, online massive amounts of fuel by pipeline to uh, being able to um, uh, deliver massive amounts of fuel by truck, uh, which is something that that wouldn't have been the norm for, for a long, long time. Uh, but now that you can do that uh, temporarily. So uh, the blame for this was pinned on a ha- hacking group called Darkside, which initially it was thought they were based in a, an Eastern European country or a former Soviet country. Uh, still, speculation abounds as, as to uh, who it is. However, they released a statement. A hacking group released a statement and they said, uh, this is almost word for word, our goal is to make money and not creating, that's their own words, not creating problems for society. So they went on to argue that, uh, you know, they don't want to, um, uh, they basically want to avoid consequences for them, for themselves, and that they provide ransomware as a service. So they have developed the software, somebody else basically rents it for a certain amount of time and uses it for their own nefarious purposes. uh, And Darkseid's hands are clean. It's it's very like a big burly man who'll walk into your shop and will just look around and go... Be a terrible shame if this place went on fire. <laughs> terrible shame, and and like Darkside in the past have done things like you know they've tried to make donations to charity and that sort of thing, and oh, you know don't. <laughs> yeah. Bull, 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 yeah. Bull, bull, bull. Oh goodness, um, it's like uh, I, I I'm I'm following this story. Um, somebody has got their hands on a whole load of data about what the next generation of MacBooks are going to look like and how they're going to be, what's going to be included and not included and da, da, da. And they're kind of saying, right, well, if Apple don't pay us, I think it's like 50 million or something they're looking for, we're going to keep releasing details. Of course, all these details get released on the web and everybody's going, oh man, that's amazing. I can't wait to get the next Apple MacBook. (laughs) It's like like Apple would pay 50 million to get that kind of publicity, but they don't have, if they don't pay, they get that kind of publicity anyway. It's it's crazy. Anyway, the uh, the other one, uh, the last one on money this week is uh, Amazon and tax. Amazon and tax. Yeah, it's a, it's another blow to a European Commissioner for Competition, Marguerite Vestager, who has been operating, not, I mean, not quite a one-woman crusade, but she's certainly the figurehead uh, in the crusade to get big big tech to start um, start paying its taxes properly. Uh, now, of course, it's not just big tech that we're talking about. She, she's also looking at multinationals like, you know, uh, Starbucks and, and even European companies like, like Fiat, uh, who've been you know, reaping the benefits of some fairly aggressive tax uh, planning over over the recent years. 
So, uh, of course, we had something called Double Irish, which uh, has been closed, uh, which was responsible for reducing the tax burden significantly uh, on multinationals, reducing the non the ostensible corporate tax rate in Ireland of twelve and a half percent. Companies were ending up paying, you know, something in the region of two percent. Uh, you know, I, again, nothing illegal, but certainly. Uh, immoral the by our standards. They're, They're just playing, playing the, the game. game. Yeah, playing the game, and thank you know the game is changing, uh, and the challenge is to get these companies that played the game successfully uh, to actually stump up what they had saved in previous years. Now, last year they lost uh, in a lower court uh, the Apple case, in which there is twenty billion potentially due to the uh, due to the exchequer, and I tell you, we could really do with that money. Uh, at the moment, it's yeah, exactly. It's yeah. 13 billion in back taxes to 2016. Um, case was annulled in 2020, um, of course, pending uh, pending appeal. And uh, Amazon got a you know, a, a similarly favorable decision, I suppose. Um, the European Commissioner Commission ruled that structure that was illegal in 2017 actually can't be applied to uh, taxes that were meant to be paid uh, before that period. So basically, tough knuckies for you guys. Um, of course, there is an appeal uh, going through the courts um, and we'll see how it work, see how it ends up. See but for the moment, Amazon off the hook for $250 million in back taxes. A very quick piece of news for you regarding a Mobile World Conference, which is uh, going to go ahead in Barcelona and in person this year. In person. Because, yeah, well, they're kind of opening up Spain again and they reckon by the end of June that uh, it'll be fine and they'll be able to have international visitors from India and all kinds of places. Mm-hmm. Um, I jest when I say that, of course. Of course. Um, uh, but a lot of the major companies are kind of saying, eh, no. So Sony, Nokia, Ericsson, Google have all said, no, they're not going to be there in person. They will be virtually, of course. Uh, Samsung then just announced this week as well that they won't be going either, but will be there virtually making, I'm sure, a number of announcements. Uh, then the other thing, just before I talk about the, the headsets, because I'm dying to hear about these, in Ireland, fibre to the home. We're actually doing pretty well at something. Do you think? Uh Yes, I do. Let, let's give the listeners some some context here, because uh, a report came out during the during the week looking at fiber to the home penetration uh, across Europe, and we ranked. Uh, this is out of the EU twenty seven plus plus the UK, mm. and we ranked eight. So we're ahead of Germany. We're ahead of the UK. Yeah, um, we're in the upper in third. The, we're in the upper. That's pretty good. Yeah. I yeah. mean, for for a country that for years uh, and is still struggling uh, with broadband rollout to finally see that it's not just broadband getting placed, but fibre to the home, which mm. is the, the nifty gigabit broadband that we'd all really like, um, is doing pretty well. And you've got this mix of the players like uh, uh, Irish Broadband, Air, uh, Virgin, investing in their own networks. Um, but then you also have the likes of Syro, who are a, a, broad, a, a wholesale provider, Hmm. So, uh, and of course, was the joint venture between the ESB and Vodafone. Um, yeah. And of course, the idea is that you will get your broadband line along your power line. So you're using the ESB infrastructure with a Vodafone uh, network. 
Mm. Uh, and if, it's the best of both worlds, really. I mean, this is this is what we want out of fiber to the home. It's it's sort of a, a low impact way of getting really good broadband con- connectivity to potentially very um, uh, new builds, mm. of course, new estates, but also parts of the country well, that are potentially quite difficult to get to. Let me ask you then, uh, because from what I remember in 2018, which is what, four years ago? Mm-hmm. Or is it three years ago? Three years ago. Three years three years ago, okay? We had one percent of homes had fiber. Right. What are we at today? We're what, eleven percent now? So eleven percent in three years. It's not a bad jump. Not bad. What was it last year? Uh eight, was it? Eight percent last year yeah. and eleven percent this year. Mm. Mm. You see, I'm just I'm I'm I I just I'm the type of bloke who wants to have that to be not just eight and eleven. I want that to be eight and a one. Eighty-one percent of homes. <laughs> well, I mean that, that's reasonable. Directly um, into the living room. <laughs> I would, I would. You know, I'm on a reasonable connection at the moment. I can do everything I want to do. Um, if it meant that you know I have to take oh, a back seat for a while yeah, while yeah, some yeah, other yeah. parts of the country get serviced, I'm quite happy yeah. with that. Actually, it is uh, crazy because we've got insanely good. Uh, we've got fiber. Um, and we're paying for it. But anyway, we've got it uh, and it's nice and it's fantastic. But you're right. What do we do? Yeah. Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. probably the, the heaviest thing that we use on it. I, th- I, I came across a ridiculous stat. It's like during peak hours in America, I think Netflix accounts for something like 20% of internet usage. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If if, if not more, like it's, it, it's crazy. However, I think uh, all of that entertainment and media and information and communications and everything, it's all going down that uh, IP route, isn't it? Like everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and it'll be like, you know, uh, Arthur C. Clarke, God bless him in the early 70s. And he said, one day a man will wake up and his newspaper will be delivered on a computer. <sighs> kind of quaint now when you think about it, it isn't is it? Kind of, it is quaint. It is very quaint. It's kind of like like when I was a kid, the two things that would have been delivered to the house before you wake up was milk and the newspaper. Milk and the newspaper. Milk. And, and it's like, that does not happen these days. I'm Sipler sure times. Age. All right. Uh, um, what was I going to tell you? WhatsApp this weekend. Yeah. The new terms and conditions are in effect uh, this weekend. And if you don't agree to them, uh, they're going to start degrading your service. OK, to define degrading your service. As in eventually they'll stop delivering messages to your mobile phone uh, or you'll stop getting uh, phone calls uh, on WhatsApp. You won't be able to do that. You'll only be able to use the text feature and stuff like that. And they'll eventually degrade it until a point where uh, you're not using it. And then 120 days after an account has been used, they just delete it. It's very aggressive, isn't it? It's not as aggressive as what they did in January, where they just put up a notice and saying, if you don't agree to this now, then uh, you're kicked off in two weeks or whatever mm. it was at well, the time. Well, that's true, like, yeah. You know. yeah. They're being a little bit more gentle about it, but uh, the message is still very much the same. If you don't agree, well, then you're not going to be able to use our thing. So that's hmm, uh, the thing that they're coming out with behind that is that they're saying all of your calls, and all of your texts are encrypted Nobody can see them. They're end to end. So it's only you and the person that you're talking to. OK. Mm-hmm. Yep. And they don't store any of that information with Facebook or da, 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 da. So none of that side of things. The reason for the new terms and conditions is because they're bringing in WhatsApp business. 
and WhatsApp business will allow businesses to also chat with you on WhatsApp. And eventually they want to go uh, like the Chinese and they want people to buy things using their WhatsApp. Mm. And in order to do that, you need to agree that you can speak with businesses and that you can trade payment information. And that's what these new terms and conditions are about. However, in Germany, uh, they say that, well, it's not very specific in the terms. It's all very general, which, of course, you know, anybody who's clever with terms and conditions will be. It'll be like, you know, we'll use your information for, you know, various things to supply you the service. Yeah, various things agree? in inverted commas. Uh, exactly. You know, so that's not good enough for the Germans. And I think they're also worried because they're going into an election this year and they're worried that there could be some misuse possibly by Facebook or WhatsApp or other parties or whatever. So they've put a three month ban on um, on WhatsApp banning any users in Germany. In so Germany, it's the 15th okay. of May for us and it's three months later in Germany. But uh, so yeah. they, they get to see if things go badly wrong <laughs> before coming to a final decision. You know, it's just back to the, you know, kind of I, I've I have agreed to it. Mm hmm. Um, but I have kind of done it in the knowledge that I don't trust Mark Zuckerberg or Facebook or any of his horrible cronies. Yeah, well, that's a good good life policy. Mm. Listen, finally, uh, we've got new toys. Speaking of uh, Facebook, mm. <laughs> HTC have got new VR headsets. They do. Now, this week was uh, VIVCon 2021, which mm. is basically HTC's um a uh, big show off of, of virtual reality and, and where their products are going. Now, HTC, uh, I mean, for they kind of, they got to market first, uh, didn't they? Oh no, Oculus got to market first and HTC were very quickly behind them. And uh, I, I HTC's um, Vive was the first VR set I tried and was incredibly mm. impressed with it. Um, and of course, the, the VR market has moved on, but they, they've gone, in, HTC and Oculus went in very different directions. Uh, Oculus, of course, was acquired by Facebook uh, and HTC is still very much its, its own creature, which means that they've mm. developed into very different directions because, you know, the technologies have been, I guess, kind of parallel. It's, you know, they've had to address the same problems like, you know, being tethered to a PC and, uh, and that kind of thing. So growing beyond that, um, but they've also uh, had to evolve their business models as well. So basically, if, if you want to sort of go premium VR, uh, you either spend a lot of money on a HTC Vive or you spend not as much money on an Oculus Quest. Uh, but the assumption being that, you know, the Oculus Quest will be... Um, Facebook might lose money up front, but they'll gain it back in services and data mining, what they yep. say downstream. Yeah. Uh, of course, HTC uh, have come out now and, you know, they're really making a virtue of this. You know, they're saying, look, we're, our cost is up front because we're not interested in your data. Uh, but it also means, of course, that their stuff is much, much more expensive. So if you want to compare the HTC, HTC Vive Focus 3 versus the Oculus Quest 2, which is their sort of, their, their mid-range headsets, if you will. Yeah. Uh, there's $1,000 in the difference. $1,000. You know? A grand. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, this is, this is, is kind of what you're looking at. Um, again, and it all comes down to that, you know, okay, here's, here's the thing. You, you know, thanks, 
uh, versus mm. Facebook wants to make a mint out of you. And here's mm. how we're going. So Facebook, HTC's had some very interesting things. Um, the Aviv general manager, uh, Dan O'Brien, was giving giving a talk at the event. Uh, and he outlined the the idea and he said, look, we're, we're kind of interested in, you know, the industrial, the corporate market, uh, training, that sort of thing. So uh, markets that perhaps aren't as price conscious uh, as you might, uh, uh, as, you know, Oculus's line, and, mm. and also would be very careful about managing their own data. So, you know, having that downstream line really wouldn't, wouldn't be of interest to them. So they said, look, we're, we're kind of interested in the corporate space. We're looking at arcades, that sort of thing, which means, you know, kind of reading between the lines that, you know what, we're, we're not that really interested in, in the home anymore. Like we're not looking to compete on price. Yeah. Um, you know, if you want to use your VR for gaming and whatever, yeah, we're, we're here for it, but we're not going to be developing any kind of services as, as such for you guys. You know, it's, it's like, you know, um, Steam uh, have their own VR store. Uh, that's nice. Uh, of course, Oculus have their own, uh, but you won't be seeing a HTC branded one. All right. Okay. Well, I, you know what? It is shocking when you think that it's a thousand dollars in difference in price between mm. the headsets. But now that you've explained it, it actually kind of makes sense because HTC are very much going down the business route. Yeah. Actually, let me let me clarify that, you know, of course, there is HTC Vive Port, which is the, the yeah. app store. But, you know, I'm, I'm sort of speaking in, in general term, in general terms that we're not going to see the same level of investment um, that we're going to see uh, with Facebook. All right. OK, but Facebook will keep it cheap and cheap and cheerful. Mm, they and certainly, it certainly won't be advanced or it won't be the same quality and it won't have the same use and it'll be more general entertainment and, da, 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 and all that kind of stuff. And then Facebook will. Do you know what? It, it actually when you said a thousand dollars, I immediately started thinking in my head going, if Facebook were to give me one of those headsets, would they make a thousand dollars out of me over the lifetime of that uh, of that headset? And they could very well do. Yeah, they're they're banking on it. Um, you know, it's an entirely new vector to to get to consumers. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Like HTC has, uh, I mean, for a while they were neck and neck in hardware. Now it's sort of pulling apart that HTC seemed to be uh, quite happy to be occupying that premium end of the market. Mm. Um, that, you know, okay, you'll have to buy slower the the cycle might be slower you know you might you might be hanging on to your set a, a little longer um so yeah both doing different things uh, different markets in mind and i suppose it's it's kind of like with um uh the google glass sort of launched in the consumer space bad idea kind of finding a its second wind in uh, in industry very similar mm. to microsoft's um uh hololens again mm. far too expensive for the consumer space doing very well in industry. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think we'll we'll probably see the Vive, you know, doing well in industry, doing well in training, doing well in arcades. Uh, maybe not so much in the home anymore. Great. All right. Well, listen, Niall, as always, thank you for keeping up, us up to date with what is happening in the world of tech. Uh, do remember, we also keep you up to date daily on all things tech with hourly updates, daily newsletters as well, uh, which you can grab for free at techcentral.ie. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. Automation is becoming a part of everyday life, but at what stage does it fail 
failed to keep with simple common sense. Sam Main is a senior partner account manager with this week's sponsor, Viper Security. And he sat down with Niall Kitson to explain why there's no replacing the human factor when it comes to IT. Of course, we're in an age now where we're seeing data as sort of a uh, a core, um, how would you say, unique selling point or, or a core facet of business. Uh, no business can successfully run without data and uh, appropriate uh, constraints and storage thereof. So what, in your experiences, have been the most common causes of data loss in companies? Well, um, there's no doubt that external actors are involved in many data loss incidents, but actually over half of data breaches are actually classed as insider, meaning that they actually originate from within the organization. And um, a significant proportion of that is purely accidental as well, which is which is quite striking. So, you know, examples of this would be things like sending an email to the wrong person or a, a sensitive attachment to the, to the wrong recipient. Um, and, you know, some of the common drivers we see behind this are, are, are things like users that are, are very, very busy, um, in a hurry, distracted or tired, um, uneducated or, or untrained users. Um, there's, there's email fatigue. There's, there's so much data going back and forth and so many emails um, that, that, that it's quite a challenge. Um, of course, there are things like phishing, which are always evolving and, and becoming more prevalent. And, uh, you know, another key one is the, the notorious autocomplete feature and outlook. Um, you know, when you're entering in, your recipients to an email, it's very easy to to pick the wrong one. So these things all present real challenges for ID departments, but it's definitely something that we can we can influence. Yeah, I think we've all experienced uh, you know the the terror of the reply all instead of reply when it when it comes to dealing yes. with, a, with, <laughs> with a with with a client. I think it's just exactly. a, a part of life, and yeah. uh, you know uh, an excellent reason for having pretty good email etiquette. Um, when you're dealing with uh, any sort of business decision making. Um, so it, it still really comes down to the, the problem existing between the chair and the table. But I guess as we're seeing the demands uh, on staff change and indeed where that particular chair and where that particular table are, uh, I, I guess that sort of throws up the need for more innovative solutions uh, than previously. Yeah, um, exactly. And you know, there's there's a number of different approaches to, to this problem. Um, you know, a, AI is is particularly useful um, in in cybersecurity in general because you know it can handle massive amounts of data and, and it can do things like detecting uh, things based on on their behaviour. So if you've never seen maybe a threat before, a zero day threat, for example, um, that's really useful. Um, we've been using this for many years now. We have a, a, a mature capability in this area. But we know that, you know, for example, the AI approach, AI isn't innately accurate. You need to train it for its intended purpose. So some of the challenges around that are around accurate prediction and, and false positives. You need to work really hard at this and, and it requires things like large and diverse data sets and, and human expertise and analysis and the right types of data as well. So you know, there are some shortfalls in that area. And on the one hand, you could either not be spotting risks or, or letting threats in. On the other hand, you could be overzealous and, and flagging things up that are, that are actually safe. 
So I think in the area of kind of DLP and, and data loss, you know, one thing about the way that people communicate, um, especially by email, is it's incredibly nuanced. Um, different recipients, domains, the, the content, uh, the attachments, even the time at which messages are sent. It's, it's really complex. Um, and certainly when we're talking to clients, we sometimes hear the expression that, you know, their DLP engine has let something through and, oh, it hasn't learned that one yet. Well, that's not particularly helpful when you try, you know, you need to stop sensitive information kind of leaving your organization. So um, I think one of the, the issues with with AI in, in, in DLP in particular can be that they're not very the engines aren't very mature. Um, when I think about our threat intelligence, our AI, um, it has, you know, nearly 20 years of experience detecting the good and the bad, whereas some other AI and especially in DLP is, is, you know, in comparison like a newborn. So it's a very useful tool. It's not necessarily a silver bullet though. And I think it's really about using the best tool for the job. So I think in DLP area, you know, and data loss, um, humans are still able to perform much more intricate decision-making and judgment as well, far, far better than machines. Yeah, I think we're still in that age where, uh, and we're seeing this across industries at the moment, is that artificial intelligence is still very much that aid to decision making as opposed to a replacement for. Do you think there still needs to be that sort of mind shift that when an AI solution is introduced into a company that people are explicitly told, look, there are things that you know AI is capable of, but there's still an onus on you to have you know an awareness of what those limitations are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there are some challenges and risks around using AI. It's, it's key to understand what, what they are and what the limitation is. Um, and like I said earlier, it's about using it in the right place, the, the best tool for the job. So our approach is definitely to include human-led intelligence in the right areas. Um, I mean, if I think about some of the examples earlier, um, users are very busy and, and, and really prone to making mistakes occasionally, especially sending all the email that we do. Um, a couple of prominent examples we've touched on, the autocomplete, you know, easy to get the wrong person, somebody with a, with a similar name, or the reply all, a big email chain. You might not realize if uh, there are internal or external people on that chain and, you know, you could potentially at best send something that's a little embarrassing and at worst actually leak some sensitive information. So. Um, it's about using the right tool for the job. Uh, and, and actually, we think that empowering users is a big part of this picture. Um, so training them regularly through security awareness training, but also giving them tools that will help them, um, like SafeSend. And, you know, this is a tool which will alert and prompt a user every time they click send to an email so that they can review, they can check the recipients, are they internal? Are they external? The attachments, are they correct? And the content, you know, is there any sensitive information there? So, you know, in a lot of the cases, ultimately, who is, you know, who knows better if the content of an email is correct than the person that's actually sending it? You know, they're the most informed, they're best placed to kind of spot and catch these mis mistakes. Uh, and, and in most cases, more so than an AI. 
So on a product like yours, how does it actually work for the end user? Uh, so what are the gubbins behind it? Because when we look at messaging, we, we think, okay, initially of the content, of course, but there's an awful lot of metadata uh, attached to email as well, for example, as you alluded to there, emails. But you're all, again, there are those nuances of time, time of day, uh, size of message, this sort of thing. So um, how does it actually sort of come together as a package? Well, it's actually about it really comes back to educating and empowering the the user you know these are the people that 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 you trust with your data um and they're they're busy so it's about um identifying to them and prompting them and alerting to them so when they are clicking send um the software will uh, present itself in the form of a pop-up and there's a series of uh prompts that it makes um uh, kind of suggestions, key areas around the recipient list, um, around the the attachments, their names, and actually the content of the attachments. So key phrases or words that might be particularly sensitive to your organization. And it's just about highlighting all of this to the end user because, you know, 99 times out of 100, they'll be very quickly and easily able to, you know, make an accurate judgment and say, you know, that is correct. I'm happy to actually confirm this send, or that's not quite right. I'm going to remove that attachment. I'm going to change that um, recipient. And, you know, this is very successful. And, uh, you know, it has some kind of knock-on effects, like um, with a lot of the LP systems, uh, the user clicks send, and, 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 you know, if it's caught in the system, it might require a member of the IT team to, to intervene and, we frequently talk to IT teams who actually are becoming a little bit overburdened and overwhelmed with the fact that so much stuff is being caught by the system that they need to constantly go in and review it because ultimately the system isn't able to make you know those correct judgments like a user can. So we're kind of bringing it back to the end user. We're putting it right in front of them. And we're, you know, alerting them and prompting them. And alongside the other product, you know, uh, the, the regular training we give them um, about other kinds of risks to email and other ways that data can be lost through phishing, um, things like that. It's really uh, almost making the user kind of honorary member of the IT security team. You know, they are they are a real line of defense. And with the right tools, you can actually really improve your security posture. Yeah, that idea on how regular staff can begin working uh, much closer with IT departments, I imagine there's a, a significant knock-on effect in terms of, you know, uh, expenditure, but also the amount of time IT departments can, can can devote to things like, you know, larger scale equipment rollouts or what have you, especially at a time when the capability isn't necessarily there to go out and do, you know, to go and do physical audits of, of what people have, that you're, you're kind of managing things uh, remotely and that takes out an entire level of control that really needs to really needs to be um, reconstituted somehow yeah absolutely um i mean th- th- there's all kinds of risks and threats out there and, and and i think working from home has has kind of added to that um you know when people are working from home they potentially could be more distracted or when you're working alongside somebody you can easily lean across and say does this look right to you? Um, you can't so easily do that at home. So, and it is more difficult for for IT departments to kind of control what's going on. So, um, we really do think that um, 
kind of a shifting culture where you actually view your users as part of the solution and empower them, give them the right tools. And actually, um, you know, it's about they can help you as an IT department. Um, it, it's a, I think it's a two-way street. You know, you all work for the same organization. You all ultimately want that organization to succeed. So it's about making, educating users not to be over-reliant on, on the IT department either. So, you know, and we know that people impact security outcomes actually much more than any technology or, or policy and, and process. So, you know, regular training of users, how to spot threats, how to spot risky behavior, um, and just giving them those those tools. And, uh, the, you know, users and, and, and the IT department can complement each other very well. And ultimately, this kind of security-first mindset and culture across the organization will dramatically, you know, improve your security posture as an organization. Yeah, and that sort of kind of healthy uh, mindset when it comes to uh, data loss prevention, it extends, uh, of course, towards other areas uh, of IT usage that perhaps people wouldn't have thought of before, uh, especially in the context of working from home, is the idea of restricting the kind of content people are, um, are consuming. Because again, you're not in a, in a straight office environment, you're in a, uh, I suppose, for want of a better term, uh, a safer space when you might be more used to uh, using your computer in a, in a more casual fashion. So what kind of solutions are we seeing out there to make sure people are, you know, kind of protected from their from their own uh, YouTube habits? Yes, exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things about being um, at home is you have a, a corporate device, a corporate asset. Uh, it's connected to your home network. Um, the organization, the IT department don't know what other devices are on that home network. So you've got your personal devices. Um, you might have visitors, family, um, members who are kind of connecting all kinds of devices to the same Wi-Fi. Um, any of those could be infected with malware. Um, you know, when you're working from home, you haven't got that watchful eye over your shoulder necessarily. So you, you know, you potentially there's, there's, there's the opportunity for more time wasting and distractions. And also depending on the, the kind of the organization's security network infrastructure, kind of if it's the kind of classic castle and moat network design, um, potentially a lot of the security is sitting back at the office, which is exactly where your users aren't. So in terms of the technology that, you know, we're using and that's really needed. Um, you know, you you really need a, a, a essentially managed um, endpoint security, including you know network intrusion detection um, uh, and kind of machine learning for advanced threats and things like that. So you know, it's it's catching anything that's going on on that that local network. Um, there's things like uh, the ability to control what types of website users are visiting. So you need web access controls, um, DNS protection, um, and things like phishing protection as well. Um, because again, I think when you're in an office environment, if you receive an email you're not quite sure about, it's quite easy to lean over and ask a colleague or, or 
you know, maybe you're slightly more on guard in an office environment, but at home, I think slightly more relaxed. So it can be easier to, to fool for things like phishing. So there's a, yeah, there's a number of technologies ranging from endpoint security, email security. Uh, another key area um, for us is, is kind of cloud VPN. And, you know, it's actually thinking really carefully about what applications and resources you give users access to in the first place. Um, if you kind of, your starting point is only giving people access to what they need um, using kind of zero trust principles and, and ZTNA, um, this is really going to help your overall security as well. So there's a mix and I think it's about layers, uh, layers of security. And um, it's about educating an, a, the user as well. That's an interesting point about virtual private networks there. Do you think it will just become part of our working environment that you sit down, you log on to your computer and there's an immediate log on then to a, to a virtual private network to say the corporate network and leave your own domestic network, uh, for want of a better term, at home? Well, yeah, I mean, you certainly ideally want to isolate the two. Um, one big risk around a lot of malware is kind of its ability to move laterally across networks, across the network. So, uh, you know, you want um, that device to be um, isolated from the rest of the local, you know, the, the home Wi-Fi. Um, but also, you know, why with a traditional VPN, quite often you're welcoming a remote user onto your entire corporate network. You know, really only that, that remote user really only needs access to one or two applications. But with a traditional VPN, you're giving them access to everything. So, you know, that might be okay if they're a trustworthy member of staff, but what if their machine becomes infected? It's very easy for those infections to migrate back to the rest of the corporate network. So, you know, traditional VPNs, there are definitely limitations and risks. So we're definitely seeing a, a move to more zero trust principles and uh, certainly cloud VPNs. Um, and, you know, our cloud VPN employs what, what we call zero trust network access principles where you're only giving people you know access to what they really need um and also the ability for the user to connect um is very very easy indeed they're kind of selecting from a menu um to to establish the connection and then they're they're launching their application like they normally would so um you're not in any way impeding the usability or the, the you know the ability for the user to quickly get on and, and start their work in the morning. And that was Niall Kitson chatting with Sam Main, Senior Partner Account Manager with Viper Security. That's it for this week. Do remember you get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website techcentral.ie. And of course you can listen to us each week online or Fridays with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next week, from myself, Dusty Rhodes and Niall Kitson, have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.